The Advent hope is that God's justice one day finally comes and that evil is finally conquered and it's banished forever. And you don't need a Black Friday to tell you that that would be a big hope, right? Like really, that evil will finally be conquered and banished forever? And our reading from Isaiah gives us a hint about how this is going to happen when Isaiah sees this vision of the mountain of the Lord's temple being established as the highest of all the mountains, so higher than all the sources of evil, whatever they may be. And I think one reason at least that the church has rehearsed these moments of Advent year after year after year for you know, going on 2,000 years, is that every generation, because of the verities of things that are happening politically and economically and all that, every generation needs hope, needs the assurance that the powers of this world do not determine the future. Not ultimately. Now, day in and day out, for whatever reason, in God's loving wisdom, He does allow rival kingdoms and rival powers, but they don't ultimately determine the world's future. The world's future will be determined by God's faithfulness. So the God who spoke everything we know into existence and has a plan for it to be fulfilled, it's that God who said, let there be light and there was light That God is also saying even today, and let my purposes be fulfilled. And someday there will be this dramatic second coming in which God's purposes are finally done. And so Isaiah tells us that in the meantime, the way these things happen, if you look at your passage, if you want, that that God will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. So his law, or the law, um, God's shepherding guidance for his people will go out from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Isaiah, I think, wants us to have an imagination that comes from putting those four words together, ways, paths, God's law, the way God thinks things should be, the word of the Lord. And what Isaiah is picturing is when these things begin to happen and when they ultimately happen, that this is true conversion. That it's an actual fundamental difference in the way the world works. So the way Isaiah sees it pictorially is that the nations beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So that the world actually changes from taking life to sustaining life. You see the picture Isaiah is seeing? That the implements of humanity go from predominantly being things that take life to things that create and sustain life. So that what Isaiah is seeing is something like this, that God will show us the way he works so that we can then live the way we're made to live that is to live in the light of God. At St. Louis University, uh, a Jesuit school, there's of course a, a beautiful Jesuit chapel on campus. 
And they have in their lighting, look at our lighting here, they have in their lighting a beautiful picture of this where they took 18th century cannonballs and they hollowed them out of their lethal force and they're now hung in the chapel giving light by which people have prayed for going on a couple hundred years. Intentionally giving a vision of what Isaiah is talking about here, that these implements of death become an implement by which people can find God and pray and worship. Now our gospel reading this morning tells us that this great final inbreaking of the kingdom, if you want to think of it this way, with the first coming of Jesus, his first advent, which people had been waiting and praying for this promised Messiah, that was in a sense the beginning of the end. And then the end of the end is going to come and we're caught living in this time between the times where there is God's kingdom at work and you can see glimpses of it. And in this advent, we are going to learn to increasingly pay attention to the inbreaking of God's kingdom in our lives. But then you've got the other kingdom, this kingdom of darkness, that as I've said, God, for whatever reason, allows it to remain. But then someday, it will all be put right. So Matthew gives us this picture that says, you know, concerning that day or hour, no one really knows when, but you need to be ready. And the picture he paints us is in contrast to those going about life and doing business as usual, but they're not living this life of attentiveness, of watching, of, of cherishing his coming. You might just ask yourself, which is gonna be a great way to start Advent. Do you cherish his coming? Or has it become kind of an odd theological thing? I mean, Dennis and I were joking before church. There's probably 13 different ways of understanding these passages. <laughs> and so they become sort of foggy in our minds and they end up not meaning very much and, and it's just kind of rhetoric, you know, uh, unless you're a big fan of the Left Behind series or something, you know, then you've got like that, you know, you've got that, you know, thing working in your head, you know, whatever. But the one thing we can make of this is what if we just cherished the little inbreakings of his kingdom day in and day out as a way of learning to cherish that big day that of course we can't get our mind wrapped around. I, I don't pretend to have my mind wrapped around what it'll be like when Jesus comes again and God finally puts the world to rights. I can't even actually imagine. But I can learn to imagine by learning to go through my day being present, not just to the people and events of my life, but present to the little inbreakings of God's kingdom in and through me and others. So what Matthew's really arguing, or what Jesus is arguing against here, is just kind of business as usual. And especially for most human beings in most times, not least us, things are confusing and they're hard right now. And there really are bleak realities out there that seem unbending. And these really do create in human beings in us, real sorrow and aching longings and deep pain. And I think, again, if we're not careful, our, our default position, we don't think about this consciously, I don't think, but subconsciously, our default positions can become, does history actually have any significance? It seems that all we actually have is increasing anxiety and uncertainty and perplexity. And so we begin to think, well, maybe history is not a lot different than sports. 
Like, can you tell me who won the Super Bowl in 1993? It was in Pasadena, I'll give you a hint. And sometimes we think that this is the way history is, it doesn't really matter. Well, the Cowboys, the Dallas Cowboys killed the Buffalo Bills. That was like 49 to seven or some crazy score. But you don't remember. And presidential cycles can seem like that. And rises and falls of the economy, and so nothing really matters. Who won the Oscar for Best, best Picture in 1993? Schindler's List. Remember, it was the big year of Spielberg. No one remembers, no one cares. Or maybe the Grammy, nice work. Or maybe the Grammy, 93, the Grammy in 93. My big hero, Eric Clapton, you know. Tears in heaven, yeah. There's always somebody good at Jeopardy, we're sending you on Jeopardy. (laughs) But we can just begin to think that, you know, life doesn't really matter, not even these things that get so blown up, Super Bowl Sunday, you know, the Grammys, you know, whatever. So you know in Shakespeare's famous Macbeth, after hearing that Lady, Lady Macbeth had died, he maybe speaks for a lot of people today when his character said, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, but signifying nothing. Right, and this is what happens to us day in and day out. The Super Bowl's built up like it's the biggest thing, you know, in American history. But 10 years, it doesn't seem to signify anything important. Even if you remember, do you care? Like, does it make any difference to your world that the Cowboys beat the Bills in the Super Bowl in Pasadena 10 years ago? And so see, unless we, look look at me, listen to me, Unless we little by little counteract that by learning to to, uh, live lives of attentiveness to the spirit, all of human life will begin to seem that way. Because what human life teaches us every day, day in and day out, is that ultimately none of this really matters. I mean, it matters to whoever's doing the Pepsi commercial at halftime, you know, Beyonce or somebody probably got paid a cool five mil for doing it or something. You know, it probably matters to her. She probably remembers. But for the rest of us, life can just begin to seem like it doesn't really matter. We often don't have the foggiest idea about the deep things in life or how to hold on to the God-given goodness of creation on the one hand, while on the other hand, taking evil serious. And I know that somehow all of us want to be persons of true faith in Jesus. But what begins to happen to some is that we think, well, persons of faith should never really be perplexed. We shouldn't really wonder about these things like second comings and that sort of thing. We really shouldn't be perplexed about that, but we should always be clear. And I think what I want to say to us this morning is Jesus does not expect us to know everything, but he does expect us to do You might think, whoa, that, really? Like Jesus expects us to do something? Yes, it's actually very clear in the passage, it's unambiguous, that he wants us to live a humble life of work in a spirit of wakeful, alert watchfulness. That's what Jesus imagined. 
The human beings would be going about their business, doing what they do, humbly, in a spirit of wakeful, alert watchfulness. And so we light the candles of Advent in memory of the light that came in Jesus. And we light the candle assuring us of this foretaste that darkness will not ultimately prevail, which again, you know, screams the big question, well, how? Well, the unexpected and dark conclusion to this story that God spoke into existence, this story of hope, is that God is drawing all the evil of the world from political evil in Rome and seizure to the corruption that was in Israel to the demonic to personal evil. God was drawing all that onto Jesus. And through Jesus' healings, his eating with sinners, his announcement of the kingdom, and calling us to this new humble vocation as servants in the world, as he hung on the cross at, at the resurrection as proof of victory over evil, and, then his, and at his second coming as the final implementation of all this. These candles tell us that we wait in hope because we wait with this memory in mind. We don't wait in blank. We wait in this amazing Jesus story in our memory. And that this hope then helps develop the spiritual art of attentive living, whereby we learn to discern Jesus' appearing in the ordinary work and as we wait for the second coming when that great day of conversion will happen to the world. And really, the theological theories about all this stuff are abstractions taken from the real events. Are you feeling me here? It's not our theological theories that are meant to be the most concrete. It's the actual events that are meant to produce in us memory. And when you ask Jesus, Jesus, how did you explain this? How did you explain that this all is gonna be made right by all the evil of the world being drawn onto you? What do you make of this? And what Jesus did when he sat around the table with his friends is he took the Passover story and he turned it on himself. No one saw that coming. I am the bread of life. My blood will be shed for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. This is the final inbreaking of God. So he takes that very well-known story and he says basically to us, that there's a greater deliverance coming of which Egypt was only a foreshadowing. And that is the deliverance from the sinfulness of the world that keeps people not living in attentive cherishing of Christ's coming. So we come to this table this morning to nourish ourselves on the reliable hope that Jesus said he was providing of new life, of the inbreaking of God's kingdom, of God's future and our present coming together at this table as we partake in him, feeding on him as he asked us on his life, celebrating his ultimate victory, and establishing once and for all his rescuing, ransoming, restoring sovereignty over the whole creation, beginning, I pray, Lord, with my heart. Like, let the inbreaking of your kingdom come to me first so that heaven and earth doesn't just overlap on this table, but that heaven and earth would overlap on my tongue. And that as it does, God's kingdom would break even further into my life.
and our lives together. Amen.